2021. Can you believe it? 21 years into this new century. And here we are still praising the Lord. And here we are today on this Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Looking forward to eternity. But in the meantime, we're here to serve the Lord. Psalm 81, sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Amen? It's a brand new month, brand new time to come and worship the Lord. And we want to do that today. Uh, we have a lot to look forward to this year. And we also have a lot to look forward to all eternity. Do we not? Yeah. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you that we can come and sing of your glory today. Thank you that we can receive strength from you today. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what is happening in our world, we can make a joyful shout to God that we can use the instruments and to make a joyful noise and to come before you and into your gates with thanksgiving. And today, Father, that I just pray that as we enter in, that uh, you would comfort us, strengthen us, and encourage us. Lord, as we look forward to the time when we can worship before you, fall down before you and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.
God really taken this message today. Thank you, Lord, that Kurt's been talking about the genealogies, Lord, in Matthew, and thank you that he's helping us understand why these certain women are in these genealogies, Lord. I just pray that you would bless Kurt today in his message, and let us just really, Lord, open our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us today, Lord, through Pastor Kurt. In Jesus' name. back there. Any good news from my ground central? Can we get the PowerPoint? Let's do that. Closer. We're getting closer to anything? It's okay. We're working our way quickly through the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to burn some rubber. We're going to burn rubber today. Get all the way down to Verse 6. All right. How about it? Feel good? Here we go. Of course, the genealogy of Jesus Christ covers a huge amount of turf in the Old Testament. And you can spend a lot of time there reviewing all the history and the stories behind the people listed here. We've been looking at the five women, we start to look at the five women that are a part of the, the genealogy. We've looked at Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And today we want to look at number four, Bathsheba. The Bible is real life stories about real people doing real things and how God interacts with real people. And the Bible then is like a test tube. It's the science of living. And you can learn much. Not only from a good example, but you can also learn much from a bad example. And today we're going to look at a very bad example, which teaches us a lot of lessons. These things are written that for our reproof and instruction, right? So we want to use it again as a means of learning from practical experience. So this is the empirical method 
empirical Bible study, which is to say, what can we learn from observation that we can apply to our life? Okay, this isn't theory anymore. This isn't speculation. This is how God actually works with people in different situations over, you know, millennium. So we know that, that this is the uh, from practical experience rather than theory or virtual reality. This isn't just some movie that we're watching. This is the application of observation. All right? So we want to learn from the outcome of decisions of those given to us in the scripture as examples. All in favor? Sometimes people ask, you know, why do we have all these odd stories in the Old Testament? Right? Why even include them? Well, the reason is they're put there to tell us something about God. You know, we look at Judah and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, and we focus in on the people, but really it's a story about how God works with people and the results that these uh, choices that they make, it, how they impact their lives. And so primarily there's stories about how the Holy Spirit works in people's lives, all right? So let's look. Move my teleprompter here. So history is shaped by the decisions people make, good or bad. What do you say? And your history will be shaped by your choices. And so we want to look at a couple things today. Uh, the two central elements in the way God deals with people is with mercy and with justice. God's mercy and justice go hand in hand as he deals with this terrible situation that we have in Matthew 1.6 of David, Uriah's wife, and Solomon. Most of us are familiar with this. This is not new territory. David's horrible moral failure in his adulterous affair with the lovely Bathsheba. Now, Sexual sin is always a problem. What do you say? Thou shalt not commit adultery is number seven of the Ten Commandments. Now, we all know that. We live in Western culture. David knows the Word of God. David meditates on the Word of God day and night. David is a man after God's own heart, yet David got himself into big trouble. The kind of trouble we see in New York SVU or Las Vegas, CSI. Sexual sin is a problem from the Vatican to the White House. What do you think? From the pulpit to the parishioner. It's a pandemic. It's a universal human problem. So how can we protect ourselves from the negative consequences of sin number seven? All right? So first of all, who is David? We would say King, King David. Now, in the genealogy of Jesus, he is the only one listed as king. So he's the, the Elvis of kings in the Old Testament. Even though there's 14 kings after David uh, in his family line, he's the only one listed as king. Now, Matthew has some choices to make here. He could have ended verse 6 with David is the father of Solomon. Put a period there. But he didn't. He had to make a choice. And that choice was to include the fact that 
Solomon's mother was the wife of Uriah. So he could have left that sort of details out referring to the Bathsheba affair. Couldn't he have? Could have just left it out. Could have kind of sharpened up the genealogy of Jesus by leaving that out. You know, give Jesus some more credibility. So I was, I was reading through uh, Josephus because all this is in there. <clears throat> and in the Antiquities of the Jews, which we talked about earlier, he gives his genealogy. Josephus gives his genealogy. And of course, he's of a priestly family. He's of a royal descent. So he goes through this huge, lengthy uh, dissertation about his qualifications to write this history of the Jews. And then I compared that to this genealogy, and I go, this is the worst genealogy that somebody could have. It's just it's not that good. But it's reality, and this, is what, and this is the sovereignty of God at work. Can we trust in the sovereignty of God? Aren't you glad about that? So God is concerned about what you do with your life, and grace is not a free ride on the carousel of sin. Are you with me? So he felt it necessary to include this disgraceful episode. And so what we discover is someone as close to God as David can fail. Now, this is not advice, right? This is not advice to follow. This is a lesson to avoid. Even if the godliest people have their weaknesses, we don't need to fail, okay? This is not a story to suggest, oh, David failed, so I can. I'm going to go out today and fail like David, right? That's not the purpose that this is included in Scripture. David did it, so, you know, uh, people say stuff like that, right? But that's not the lesson we want to take away from. So let's listen. Did Joseph fail? Nope. Did Joshua fail? Deborah? Hannah? Samuel, no. Did Jeremiah fail? Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zechariah, Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, the 12 apostles, did they fail like this? No, no, no. What's does it say? You don't need to do this. You don't need to fail. God has grace to help us overcome temptation. That's the good news. So this is a good example of a bad example, this is what not to do. So we want to spend a little time reviewing the story and refreshing ourselves so we can understand that this is put on public display for our learning. Now, what if the story of your life was on public display? Would you like that? No. Would you live life differently if someone followed you around with a camera and took pictures of you every day? You should say, no, I'd live my life the same way, right? Right? If your life would change because someone followed you around with a camera, you're living in, you should need to change, right? Now, obviously, nobody's perfect. We understand that. And this genealogy of Jesus is not pristine purity, is it? And I think that's an encouragement to it. And you think about the, the, the human genetics involved in his humanity and the combination Canaanites, Moabites, Gentiles, Saint, sinner, devious, devout. You've got everything involved in this genealogy, right? Gentile, Jew. I mean, what, 
there, I probably know 100% Jew, right? There's no 100% anybody. We're all part of the whole global family. So as we, we look at who's Uriah, who is Uriah's wife? And why is David having children from another man's wife? Okay? Bad news. So it starts out in 2 Samuel. A lot of us are familiar with it. Preached on this about 10 years ago, so if you remember that, that's good. It seems like in the springtime is when they do their annual cleanup, go to war. And so they all go off. General Joab takes the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, the king's men are a special select group that are David's chief warriors, okay, his mighty men. But what did David do? He remained in Jerusalem. So they usually make two military campaigns a year, I'm told, one in the autumn and one in the spring. They don't go into winter because it's inconvenient, cold, and the summer it's too hot. So you can only do war in, in those particular times. Now, there's no reason given why David remained in Jerusalem. He's a warrior king. He's usually at the head of the battle. He's leading the charge. He's fueled by his passion, not only for God, but his desire to protect his family and his people from their enemies. But what's David doing now? He's not going out to battle. Now, there are seasons and times to do things, but he's not doing what he should be doing in the season when he should be doing it. All right? We have seasons also, and there's times when we need to be actively involved in preparing for what's next. Are you with me? So maybe he's done fighting, maybe it's too hard for him. So he sends his generals out and his chief warriors to do battle. He's going to stay home in his cozy, comfy palace. And what happens? Boredom happens. Check this out. So one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around. He's just walking around. <laughs> on the roof of the palace in the cool of the evening, and he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Sometimes it doesn't even matter if the woman's beautiful or not. So my first question is, what is he doing in bed until evening? Huh? How bored are you? David's place was with his armies. Now, this is his first mistake in not being active in serving God. Okay? God has called us to the battle, not the bed. Perhaps he became weary with battle. Maybe he was enjoying the soft life of success. All his hard work. Now he can... He's about... the the. the they chronologically determine his age about 50 right now. Okay? That's the prime of life. 50? You kidding me? <sighs> but he's surrounded now by all the success and comforts of the royal palace. Now, this episode gives birth to so much art and literature and movies and music. You know, the Bathsheba uh, David incident. Okay? Go online. Check it out. There's just tons of information. So 
Here's one picture of David. He's got his crown on. I doubt he would have it on. But he's looking over the fence, and there's this girl bathing, obviously, in this beautiful pool. It looks awesome. And I doubt it looked like that, okay? So he's got nothing better to do, and there's a little bit of light left. So he's able to look across the valley, the many houses on the hill slopes, next to the... Uh, palace. As he looks down the courtyards, he sees this very beautiful woman, and she is in bathing. So uh, what I want to do, uh, when do we go there, Bob? We, we've done numerous tours to Israel. I want to do another one, not this year, but next year. And one of the things they found is the actual city of David, and what they believe was the palace that, that he actually occupied. And so this is what it looks like from the mountaintop of his palace, which has been excavated, okay? So you're not looking over the wall to somebody next door bathing in a pool, okay? That would be within the palace grounds. How likely is that? And you would know who that person was if that's your next door neighbor, right? So this is the view from the... from what would have been David's palace, one of the views. You can see the valley, and you can see all the houses up on the other side. So it would really be hard to see somebody that far away and to know what they're doing over there and also to go, oh, that's really beautiful, okay? It would be a hard thing visually. Regardless of that, <clears throat> here's the view today. If you went there on a tour, it would take you up and show you that. Oh, look at that gray-haired guy. Have any more of those? Huh? Look how young Bob was in those days. So he's on the roof, and, and what does he do? Well, mistake number two, he continues to look, right? And then what? Mistake number three, he begins to scheme. He begins to develop a plan. So what should he do? What would you do? What do you do? He should immediately turn away, right? He should not look. He should recite Job 31.3. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. You do the look away. What does that do? That helps you immediately, right? You cannot spend too much time thinking about that. Does he turn his eyes away? No. He could begin to pray for his troops that are in battle, couldn't he? I got my guys out there. I'm going to do the look away, and I'm going to pray for my troops. Does he meditate on the law? Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. You think that would have helped him to go back to the word of God and let that help him in this moment of temptation? No, he stops, takes in the view. He should ignore the temptation. He, he should walk away with the same legs that it took him to get up there. Right? He knows the way up. He knows the way back. All right? He knows the way out. Now, even though he is biologically wired for procreation, God calls us to self-control. What do you say? You have to exercise self-control every day, 
all the time. What do you say? On all manners of, of things. Just driving here today, you got to drive on the right side of the street, got to obey the speed laws, you got to stop at the red light. What's all that? That's self-control. We do it all the time. Okay? Especially in this particular case. But this is a train wreck waiting to happen. What should you do? Put on the brakes, right? Put on the brakes. Now, it should say that uh, David prayed to God, quickly turned away. But the fact that he didn't resist temptation shows that he was at a place of very low spiritual vitality. One, he didn't go out to battle with the guys. He's laying around in his room on his comfy little couch. You know, God has called us to the cross, not to the couch, right? He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart, but now he's after his own heart. He's not waging the war for the battle of his heart. He gives in. He doesn't even seem to struggle with temptation at all. And guess what? If you don't fight, you won't win. Now, there's much ado about the fact that David did not go to war as usual. And as the saying goes, how's the saying? And I don't mind. Well, how's it? I don't mind the devil's workshop. However, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you're with. You are responsible for your own spirituality. What matters is who you are. And you are a child of God. And you alone are responsible for your own choices. You are accountable to you. And if you can't hold yourself accountable, nobody else will. Nobody else can. Now, was there anyone with Joseph when he refused Potiphar's wife? Was there anybody there with him? Who would know? No one would know. Could he get away with it? In his head, he could devise a scheme. They could devise a plan on how to get around this whole thing, right? But look at what uh, Joseph says. She says to him over and over again, not just one time we find out, come sleep with me. And he refused. When did he refuse? Just like that, right? Instantly. Look, how could I do such a wicked thing. It would be a great sin against God. Thank God for Joseph. What do you say? It would be a great sin. Joseph is holding himself accountable to God whether anyone is with him or not. It doesn't matter if you go on vacation. It doesn't matter if you have some leisure time. It doesn't matter if you're by yourself. It doesn't matter where you are. You're not on vacation from God. Are you? David could stay home for once. David could take a vacation. But there's no excuse for what happens. There's no vacation from holiness. What do you say? Think Think of how this has to play out in his mind. We can take some scriptures from Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve, and we know what God said. Didn't God say 
not to eat from the tree of adultery or you'll die? Yeah, yeah, he did say that. Then he goes, well, you, you're not really going to die. Besides, you're the king and you're a manly man. And, and you know, think of all the stuff that's got to go in his head because he has to justify this, right? So there's got to be this huge thought process. And when David saw the fruit was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable, he took some and ate from it. So David desires her beauty, saw a good thing, it was pleasant to the eye and desirable, and so took and ate it. Now there's so much made of Eve's sin, so little is made of David's sin. But listen, ready? The history of Israel and the history of the world will be affected by this sin. Even until today. Now you think, well, sin is just between me and God. It's not. It affects your family, it affects your friends. Because he's a national leader, it affects the nation of Israel. From this point onward, as you review Old Testament history, the United Kingdom of Israel begins to fall apart. All right? From this point on, the history of Israel is all downhill. Now, check it out. If David can see her bathing, can she see peeping Tom? He checks her out. He checks where her house is. Then he calls an aide and points out to her. Right? He calls a courier. And he's got to call the guy up. He's got to say, look over there, right? I want you to go and find out about her. Now, the thing that's intriguing to me is there's no space between the period there and the next sentence. The guy says, isn't this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So I'm trying to find out if there's any indication he actually hiked down from the palace and went down the valley, went up the other side, found the house, knocked on the door and asked who that was, or if he's able to look over and go, isn't that Bathsheba? <laughs> right? It doesn't look like there's much time here. So even if it took an hour for him to go down and do all that and to come back, because kind of a bit of a hike to make all that happen, he comes back with his report that this is uh, Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So now what? Now what does David know? He knows that she's a married woman. And that should have poured cold water on this fire, shouldn't it? You would think so. And then he found out she's the wife of Uriah, who's one of his 30 hand-picked chosen mighty men of war and a trusted friend now serving him out in the field. And David also knew that Bathsheba was the granddaughter. Whoops, that's where he had to go. So, oh no, so, okay, got more pictures here. So the courier would have to go all the way down from the palace, outside the palace, to find out who this woman was and then return. And so we find out that this is Bathsheba, who's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, 
and the granddaughter of Ahithophel. I don't know how to pronounce it. But he was a, at, at the time, he was a highly respected counselor of David. So the daughter of Eliam, one of his 30 men, the, who's the son of Ahithophel, and Eliam was one of his 30 men. So he knows who she is, and he knows how well connected she is to his closest friends, right? So he's got plenty of time to resist temptation, does he not? In this long chain of choices and decisions on this road to committing adultery, he should stop making plans, right? He should confess his sin to God. He should get right with God right then and there. If he's let it go on this far, right? He can stop right there. He should take an axe to his sexual fantasy. He should get on his armor and go to war. When David laid down his physical armor, he also laid down his spiritual armor. He should get busy serving God. Now, this is a huge honey trap. And he's going to step in it with both feet. So just so you know that Uriah is one of his mighty men. Eliam is also listed in the list. So the inclusion of Uriah in his list of David's heroic warriors distinguishes him as a brave and devoted soldier and officer. And you even find out that Uriah served with David since the early days when David was a fugitive and running from Saul all over the place. And so Uriah is not just a common grunt. He's one of his special friends. And the name Uriah means uh, the Lord is my light. Can you imagine? What a great name. So the fact that David knows all this increases the ridiculous assault on Uriah's honor. What should he have done? Oh, wow. That, let's, that's Uriah's wife. That's bad. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's go to the Lord right now. Get some people around you, pray with you, right? Temptation can be tough sometimes. It can be an overwhelming passion. But is God's grace there for you? Absolutely. You think if he turned to God right now, that God would give him grace to resist this? Yeah. The whole history of the world would be different if he did that, if he did that one thing. If he just said one prayer, asked for grace one time, the whole history of Israel would be completely different, which I hope to show next week or so. Instead, what does he do? He sends messengers to get her. What? Anyway? She came to him. He slept with her. She becomes pregnant. That seemed all too simple, didn't it? So he sends these diplomats, these messengers, to get her. So he's, he's got to embarrass himself by asking people to go get this girl, bring him to her. Think about these poor messengers, right? And it's plural. So he, these are royal messengers. They're officially commissioned to go get her, right? Whoops. Where's my picture? Oh, I thought I had a picture on there. So here's interesting to me is that these royal messengers don't question David <clears throat> about his request to bring this dainty little morsel, even after they tell him this is Uriah's wife, right? Isn't there anybody that will hold him accountable? How often does that happen that you have such, you know, an elevated position in the eyes of those around you that you can't rebuke somebody in authority who's doing the wrong thing. 
Now, it's not even to say that he would take the rebuke because he seems pretty dead set on doing this thing, right? And I think when they said, hey, this is Uriah's wife, should be rebuke enough, right? That should have worked. They know the Ten Commandments as well as anybody else, but it doesn't seem like anybody's going to challenge this choice by David. He's surrounded by yes men. How come no one has the courage and the love to rebuke him? And how long has this been going on? Like the messengers follow his orders effortlessly as if they've done this before. And they waste no time in bringing her to the palace, and he makes quick work of her. Right? Bathsheba, the dutiful wife, doesn't seem to resist, does she? Shouldn't she say no? Right? Even once, we don't get that indication. Shouldn't she have made one feeble attempt to resist and be the faithful wife of Uriah? Hey, David, no. <laughs> Uriah, I'm the faithful wife of Uriah. I'm the Proverbs 31 woman, not Proverbs 7 woman. What if she was a woman of honor and a virtuous wife and refused him. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Totally different story. History would be different. We wouldn't have to read about this. We wouldn't have to see it scattered through medieval art and movies and whatnot. Where's, where's she in all this? David was willing to risk his future and his family for 20 minutes of pleasure. All right? Think about what it cost. For what? Are you kidding me? Seemed too easy for David. You can't get this bad with just one small and distant glance. There's so many obstacles, so many times he could have made a better decision. And not only that, but why even bother with her? Right? David's got concubines. He's got wives. He probably had seven wives by this time. Who knows? He's got, he's got at least 20 uh, sons, he's got daughters. We, we're not even sure how many children he actually had, but there's at least 20 of his children listed in scriptures. He ends up having eight wives. He's got concubines, which are, you know, dial a ride or something. I don't know what they are. It just, it's like, are you kidding me? Now, it would not be hard for a good man to resist this temptation. What do you say? No. I mean, you don't just go up on the rooftop, see a woman, and order her up for room service. Hey, guys, come with me. That one over there. Yeah, go bring her to me. Right? This sounds a little bit like Ghislaine Maxwell, right? David's got a little Jeffrey Epstein thing going on in the palace. Climbs out of his couch, goes up to the roof. Hey, find me another young lady over there. Send men down. Bring her up for an interview. It's like window shopping. David knows her husband's not at home. David doesn't think, oh, this is my, my best friend's wife. He thinks, oh, poor little thing. She's so lonely. She's been away for a long time. I'm going to help her out. And so he plays the prostitute, right? He perfumes his bed and couch and seduces her, which doesn't seem to be too difficult. And the only problem is this. What? She ends up pregnant, right? So recreation becomes procreation. 
unfortunately. She got pregnant. And so what's going to happen? David's going to be busted when Uriah comes home. So now he's got to go into a deeper plan. So this sin just pro- pro- procreates more sin is what he did. Gave birth, and then his lie gets on bigger. Then he's got to cover up, right? Now we got to do the cover up. And that's not the first time that, that's ever happened. But it's a horrible situation for him to be in. And he thinks he's done all this in secret. Everybody's away. No one's going to find out. And, but his royal messengers know. The household servants know. All of Bathsheba's girlfriends know. And more importantly, God knows. Right? You think God doesn't see this happening? <sighs> David thinks his sin has been done in secret. But this thing has taken shape, an ugly shape. It's going to embarrass him publicly. It's going to embarrass him for a long time. This is a scandal in the category of Chappaquiddick. So what's David going to do? He could own up to it, right? He could try to fix it as far as he, he's gone right now. It's never too late to do the right thing, right? What do you say? Doing the wrong thing to cover up the wrong thing is the wrong thing. <sighs> How well did his cover-up go? We all know about it, so it didn't go very well. So now, we, most of us are familiar with the story. He goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send for Uriah from the battlefield as the ruse. I'm going to try and figure out you know, what's going on. What's going on out there? How's the battle going? Hey, send Uriah, right? So he brings Uriah back from the battlefront, and uh, what is his hope? His hope is that Uriah's been away, his wife's beautiful, uh, he's going to go home, he's going to partake of the sweet nectar of marital domestic life, but he doesn't do that. He's too honorable. The guy has too much integrity. So he sleeps at the entrance of the palace with the the king's servants, and he doesn't go down to his house. Now David is miffed because he thought my best laid plan is not working. So he calls him in. He says, you're right. Why why didn't you go home? (laughs) He goes, because the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the old field. How can I go to my house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife? And surely live. I will not do such a thing as this. Wow. The problem is Uriah shows himself to be such a man of integrity, and David wasn't counting on that. And as much as Uriah would love to go home to his beautiful wife, he's part of an army at war, so he sleeps at the king's gate. His loyalty is going to get him killed. Now, remember that Uriah is a foreigner, he's a Hittite, but he shows greater integrity for the word of God than David does at this time. So the next day, David decides to get him drunk and to wear down his self-control, and it doesn't work. Uriah doesn't go home again. So now David has to come up with plan Z, right? And that is to write a letter to Joab 
that instructs him to move Uriah up to the gate, pull the men back, and where Uriah is accidentally killed in battle. So when he gives uh, Uriah the letter to take to Joab, Uriah is actually carrying his death warrant from his friend, David, who the night before, sitting around, drinking, having a good time, probably talking about old stories, cracking jokes, slapping each other on the back, talking about how the war's going and maybe how we defeated Saul or something, you know, just just horrible situation, horrible situation. So now her husband's dead. Bathsheba hears that her husband's dead. She mourned for her, for him. <clears throat> I mean, did she cry? <laughs> How does that look? And then after the time of mourning, <clears throat> David brought her to his house. She became his wife. <clears throat> so as soon as the mourning period is over, he takes her as a wife. Did they have a wedding? Did, was it like a royal wedding with David and Bathsheba? And did they have a wedding cake and invite all your friends? Was Joab there knowing what David had done? And can you celebrate this union? I don't know. It would be pretty hard, it would seem like. But check this out. And this is the justice of God, okay? This is extremely important for anyone when we get to this point is that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What do you think? Okay, is God happy about this? No, can't be. In fact, uh, this thing, displeased, means to break into pieces. It means to be evil and wicked. This evil and wicked thing that David had done had just broken the heart of God. Displeased is too nice of a word. It's a shattering evil that hurt and insulted the Lord God. So what is God going to do? He's going to send the prophet Nathan to confront David. <clears throat> so the Lord sent me. The Holy Spirit sends Nathan to David. And Nathan's going to tell this parable about the two men in the same city. One's rich, one's extremely poor. The guy's exceedingly rich. He's got so many flocks. He's got all kinds of herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, a little female lamb. That's all he's got, this one little female, this little beautiful thing that he, that he had. So he's telling the story of the two guys. <clears throat> and the story goes on about a traveler who came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd. So traveler comes, the rich guy is not going to take a, a lamb from his own flock, from his own herd. He's going to take it from the poor man, the only lamb he has. He's going to prepare it for the guy who come to visit him. And of course, David reacts to this. He's furious. Now he's angry. Now there's a great injustice that's been done. Now he's uh, all just, right? Justice must be done against this guy. The man who has done this 
should surely die. That's guilty of the death penalty. He's had no pity. And he should pay back four times for what he's done. I could just see Nathan just breathing a little bit and taking it, you know, in stride and waiting for this to soak in a little bit, right? And then what does he say? <laughs> You're the guy. You're the man. Now, this is why this is important for everyone sitting here today and for me and anyone who might be listening to this is what is said next, okay? He says, you have despised the commandment of the Lord. What do you say? You did evil. Listen to this. You killed Uriah. Did he? You taken his wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. This is the people they were having a war with at the time. 1045 B.C. Now check this out. Pay close attention here. The sword shall never depart from your house. Okay? That is a long-term negative consequence as a result of that sin. Okay? He didn't get away with it. Couldn't cover it up. God saw. Everyone knows. Because you have despised me, despised the commandment, taken the wife of Uriah, your good friend, to be your wife. David has a couple of things he can do right now, right? He can get all hard-hearted, or he can repent of his sin. How long is never... Huh? The sword, is that good news or bad news? Okay. The house of David, your house, will be negatively impact, impacted forever as a result of that sin. Okay, so he's, he gambled a lot with his future. Now, what is forever? Forever is future, right? So now your future, the future of your family is now impacted by this sin. There are consequences. This is the point. Severe consequences in this particular case. And when we think sin doesn't matter, got no one sees, I can get away with that, that's the same old story, isn't it? Justifying sin leads to negative impact. So David says, I've sinned against the Lord. That's a good starting place. What do you say? Okay, David says, look it. Lord's going to forgive your sin. You're not going to die, but the sword will never be removed from your house. Your little 20 minutes of adultery has now impacted the future of your family forever. His sin is forgiven, but his 
his family is going to experience the long-term consequences of his sin, and so will the nation. So will the nation. Just some of them is David's firstborn child, Bathsheba, dies. We know that. David's daughter is raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Absalom murders Amnon. Absalom rebels against David, sleeps with his concubines, then attempts to dethrone David. David has to flee Jerusalem in disgrace, right? And be cursed, and then eventually Absalom is killed. His hair is caught in the tree, right? So he's, he's killed. And so the division of the once unified kingdom begins to unravel. In spite of the forgiveness of sin, in spite of the great mercy of God, there still are long-term ramifications to his actions. And that's important for us to realize because you're not getting away with anything, okay? Nobody's getting away with anything. Are you with me? So then David wrote this great psalm in response. He said, have mercy on me, God. And he goes deeply into it. And I believe he's honest in his prayer to blot out his trans, calling on God to call out his transgressions and to cleanse him from iniquity and sin and wash him clean. I mean, who wouldn't want to be washed clean from that, right? We love this part of it. Created me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a uh, steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence like he did with Cain who would not repent. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me joy of salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. All right? That's an important prayer. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. It's like sacrifice isn't going to make this better, right? Yeah. What good sacrifice now? I'd bring a hundred of them if I could undo it. So you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. You, you offer because you've sinned, right? If you didn't sin, you don't need offerings. So the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God won't despise that. That's what God really wants. God wants to hear from your heart, right? not from your lips, not from ritual or liturgies or stuff. God wants your heart. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll finish up here, hopefully. These things happen as an example and written down as warnings for us. I don't know how much more we need to know that that's not, uh, breaking number seven is not a good idea. Huh? Okay. So be careful. That you don't fall. You think you're standing firm? Be careful, right? Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You need to guard you. You need to hold yourself accountable to God and to God's word. No temptation is taking you except that is common to anthropos, all humanity. It's same all over. Same old, same old, right? 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10 minutes ago. God is faithful, is he not? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you bear, 
He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Thank God for that. Which is to say you can be successful against temptation. You don't need to give in to that. Uh, even though no one was around to tell him that he shouldn't do it, he had the word of God. He had the Holy Spirit in his heart. David knew better. David knew the law. David knew the consequences. Uh, this was a test case. Shouldn't commit adultery. This was a test case. What are you going to do? You know, violating the Ten Commandments is like shooting yourself in the face. Not even the foot, right? You can get along with your foot. You lie, you steal, you cheat, you dishonor your parents, you dishonor God, you covet other people's things, uh, you commit adultery. You might as well just shoot yourself. It's, it's self-inflicted wounds. You know what I'm saying? God will provide a way out. You know, violating the Ten Commandments is like drilling holes in your lifeboat. It's like jumping out of an airplane and out of parachute. It's going to be fun for the first five seconds. It's like jumping off the Titanic and missing the lifeboat. Okay? Check it out. Flee from sexual immorality. This is 2,000 years ago. Flee. Run away. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Flee and fight. Flee from all this, young man. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight. Is it a fight? Yeah, you gotta fight temptation. You gotta fight against it. You gotta put up, you gotta put up a struggle. Right? God's will for you is to be holy. Stay away from all sexual sin. All of it. Man, it's just it's so easy nowadays, right? It's incredible. With the computer and all the internet porn and all of the, everything that's so available nowadays, even movies. Just going to stay away from all that, okay? Not good for you. Poison. Why would you drink poison? I'm just going to drink a little bit. <laughs> okay. Live. This is it. Live. Live in holiness. Live in honor. Not in lustful passion like pagans who don't know God and don't know God's ways. God wants you to live in holiness and righteousness and goodness and faithfulness. It's good for everybody, right? good for you, it's good for the family, good for the nation. So if you're in my email list, I've sent this out to you. There's various ways to help you conquer temptation. The first thing is just to ignore it immediately, right? Temptation's common, so what? Who cares? What's temptation? It's everything horrible, right? It's gross, terrible. So what? It's common. Get rid of it. Take a trash out, right? Do you go through your trash at home? Hmm? You pick through it? Count the maggots? No, you wrap it up, take it out. It's a trash guy. So you got trash, take it out, right? Don't worry about it. You don't have to analyze it. It's all common. Everybody has the same thing. It's universal, okay? Is it not? <laughs> and learn to say no. This is really important, Titus 2, 11 and 12. Just say no, right? Temptation comes as a yes. You want to do this and that. No, no, I don't. That's destructive. That would be terrible, <laughs> right? Plus, it violates the law of God. We're not doing that today or ever, <laughs> right? Talk to yourself like that. Why not? 
Uh, resist the devil, submit to God. Why not? Resist the devil, submit to God, come to God. If you're in the midst of a huge temptation, bring it to God. Ask God to help you. Run away from it, we learn from Scripture. Stay away from things that are overly tempting to you. Does that make sense? I'm not going to go into a porn shop, right? Why would I do that? That wouldn't make any sense. Stay away from movies, books, literature, stuff that, you know, ag aggravate your sarks. Keep away from it. Speak scripture. That's what Jesus did. When you're in the middle of a temptation, go through all your memory verses, right? Go back to the Bible, pick it up, read it, look it over. Pray. Why not pray? Lead us not into temptation. Why is that in the Lord's Prayer? So you can pray when you're tempted that you have the power and the strength and the grace of God not to be led into temptation. Worship God. Acts 16. Remember when they're in trouble? What do they do? They worship God. You know, Alexa, play music, Christian, praise and worship. You know, whatever you have access to, begin to worship God. Uh, call people to pray with you and for you. you. You might have some accountability partners, some people that would help you. Sing and pray in the Holy Spirit. Just break out into worship in tongues, right? Why not? Come before this presence with singing. You've got to divert your attention, refocus your mind on what's good. Begin to serve others. Go out and serve other people. Get the Holy Spirit flowing in your life to get your mind off this trash that you think is what you want to do. Start doing good things. Help, help other people, right? Serve. Confess sin. If it's sin, you can confess it, right? Why not? Call it what it is. That's sin. No. <laughs> right? Even if you haven't done anything with it, even haven't gotten to the point of no return or someplace, you just confess it as a sin. That, that would violate God's law. That's sin. I'm going to confess it, even though I haven't done anything with it. I haven't let the sun go down, right, on that sin. And then, you know, forgive. If people are involved or someone is involved with whatever it is, just forgive. There's lots of things you can do in the moment to counteract the temptation. God will provide the way out and God will help you. And you'll guard your family, you'll guard your friends, you'll guard your neighborhood, your city, your nation, and the world. And you'll guard your own future. All right? Shall we pray? For me, when I was reviewing this, I said, Lord, I don't want that sword in my house. Right? I said, no matter what happens in my life, I don't want that sword in my house. I want the blessing of God in my house. I don't care if I starve to death. I don't care if I don't have any money. I don't want that sword in my house. That will never go away. I want the blessing of God in my house. All in favor? Father, we come before you right now. Lord, we are your sheep, the people of your pasture. We thank you for this lesson that we can read over and over again in many different forms and ways in your scripture. And Lord, we humbly come before you and ask for grace, shelter, to protect us in every way as you have, Lord. You've kept us so faithful. Your grace is all we need, Lord. We pray that we're able to move ahead in the future and to do good things, Lord, that we can serve you, keep our hand to the plow, not look back, not look to the right or left, remove our foot from evil, 
and continue to serve you faithfully and, Lord, to produce fruit that endures for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. We have communion elements today, which is perfect opportunity for us to consecrate ourselves again. Remembering what Jesus has done for us, the price that he paid to set us free from not only the penalty, but also the power of sin, and so that we can chart a better future in holiness and righteousness. So we're going to worship a little bit, just come and take one of the communion elements. If you're at home, take a moment with us right now, whatever you have, just to remember the death and the sacrifice that Jesus made, then we'll come back and take it together.
against the body of Christ. It's interesting because when we take this, we're in an unbroken chain all the way back to the upper room, are we not? Christians have been doing this for a long time. It takes us right back to that place where Jesus gave it to them and said, this represents my sacrifice for you. And as often as you do this, remember the death, right, that Jesus paid for us. Shall we? took a cup so this cup is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you covenant is an agreement right brand new one every time we drink this we're recalling that we have entered into an agreement with God you take my sins I give you my life to serve you he shed his blood to set us free, did he not? All in favor? Is he worthy? Stand if you can and let's sing this song again. There's no other name. He's worthy of everything. He's worthy of every breath. And we're going to be able to be with him forever. Isn't that awesome? We're looking forward to joining all of our family and friends that have gone on ahead of us. In the meantime, we want to add to a long list of people. We want to be faithful servants. We want to be like Uriah, loyal to the word of God faithful servants for the Most High God. Let's worship Him, shall we? Tell Him how worthy He is. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, oh, we live for you, and holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you, open up my eyes in wonder, show
Every single dream, I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wandering never changes what you see. I try to win this war, I confess. My hands are weary. Trust. 
glory to God. Yes, does it feel so good to be able to trust?
for this day, God. Let us um, resist temptation, Lord, always. And let us also remember, God, that um, when we face temptation, that even though you forgive us, Lord, there are consequences. So let us, when we face temptation, remember that there are consequences to our sin, Lord, even though you are always forgiving and loving, Lord. Let us just take that message in, God, and let us reflect on these verses when we remember that, Lord. And let us also remember how to flee temptation, the things you mentioned, like worshiping you, Lord, uh, asking for prayer, fleeing, uh, running away, um, all the things mentioned, God. Let us just really take those to heart, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.